Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning. Man, it is so good to see people in this room finally. You know, when you come in, you do the, the live streaming videos, you do them ahead of the, of the week, and you go in, there's nobody here. So it's sort of a, a str strange to preach in an empty room, but it's good to preach to people in a room. So excited about that. A couple announcements for you. Uh, just so you know, by the way, as for just as things happen in the church, there have been so many technology snafus that have gone on uh, this week. We've had people here all the way till 10 o'clock or later last night working on technology issues, 5.45 a.m. working on technology issues, between service working on technology issues. So you have a great tech team. It's been working really hard. But if something goes a little crazy and doesn't work quite right, just cut them some slack because for some reason we're having more challenges today than usual. Um, also, a couple announcements for you. I want to remind you about the online registration that Kendra told you about on the video. So we uh, know that you're here, and we also can contact you if there would be somebody with a positive test. And that all your sermon information and all is on that website. You can find on your phone. Encourage you when it comes to giving an offering. We're not taking one right now, but you can still give. Go to uh, the church website or go to our Realm app, and you can give that way. And we'd encourage you to continue in your generosity towards the church. Um, and Vacation Bible School, by the way, many of you know we're not having that this year for obvious reasons, but Kendra has worked really hard. She has activity bags that she has put together and along with the Spencer campus for kids to be able to take home each week, and those are sanitized and all the other good stuff you need to do in, in this time, so make sure that uh, you're able to get a hold of those. Um, on Wednesday night, we have our Quick Connect prayer meeting at 7 o'clock. encourage you to join us for that. And if you want to get information on that prayer meeting, simply sign up for a Realm account, which you can do on our website. They're free. And sign up and join the Spirit Lake campus, and we'll send you information during the week. And we have sort of a big Zoom FaceTime call where we pray with one another. We pray for our community. We pray for our nation. And we pray for the needs of our people. So it's a great way to be able to touch base during the week. Uh, last announcement is that we there is a women's ministry webinar coming up on June 29th at 7 p.m. You can find information about that on Realm. Uh, the lady's name is Adrian Babbitt. She wrote a book called The Miscarriage Project, and it's a great book <coughs> on struggling through that with that. And so, ladies, you can get together and enjoy that seminar from her on June 29th at 7 p.m. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the study of God's Word, which I am just totally stoked for. Not only am I stoked because we're back together as a church family, but just so you know, we are going to study the premier Christological passage, I think, in the entire New Testament this morning. You will see Jesus Christ more clearly in this passage, I think, than just about any other, and you will be humbled when you understand what he has done for us. So I am just totally stoked to be able to preach this. So let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing Son, Jesus Christ. In the midst of this world where we have riots, and we have looting, and we have burning, we have viruses, and all these negative things that are surrounding us, I thank you that when we gather, we gather to celebrate. 
celebrate something that is so much better than any of these negative things. We celebrate you, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins. Adoption as your uh, children. We celebrate the fact that death cannot give us defeat, but you have snatched defeat out of death and given us victory. You have been so good to us. So we gather for a celebration service, not a somber service. We gather to uh, just enjoy and just think about the wonderful things you have given us through Jesus Christ, and I pray that we would be changed by that. Now this morning, I ask that you would help me to teach well, to be able to represent this passage clearly, that you would guard my mouth and help me with my words, because I would only speak what is helpful and what is true. And I ask for everyone who's listening, that they would have their hearts softened and their lives changed by a clear picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I want to send a special greeting to those who are in the gym or who are in the commons. Uh, you are really applying the most recent passage that we looked at in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul talked about in humility, considering others better than yourself, and you chose to take a video venue instead of being in the main sanctuary. So we thank you for doing that. And I also want to send a special greetings to those who, of you who are connecting with us online, whether that's through our Crosswinds TV website, or whether that's on Facebook Live, or whether that's on YouTube, or all those other places out there. I want you to stay safe and stay home if that is the best thing for you and your family. So just want you to know we love you, and we miss you, and we're looking forward to get, getting back together with you. Two weeks ago, when we were in Philippians, the main thing we learned from Philippians chapter 2, the first two verses, is that the pathway to unity in the church is through humility in the church. And that's what Paul taught us clearly, that unity comes from a humble people, not a prideful people. Let me just show you the two things that uh, Paul taught us about humility and how what humility looks like, and how it comes out in our lives. By the way, this is right in your outline, which you have online, so you can read these things. Humility is considering others more significant than ourselves, and humility is looking out not just for our own interests, but for the interests of others. Now, since that sermon, in our culture, we have seen what happens when those words are not applied. We know what happened up in Minneapolis, where a police officer didn't consider a man named George Floyd more significant than himself, didn't consider the interests of that man as more important than his own. Now, people say what he was a racist. Well, the reality, let's just pull the word racism aside. What he was displaying was really pride. I'm better than you. I'm more significant than you. And I could use the blue color of my uniform and the badge that I have to um, really hurt you, ultimately to take your life. So the root of all that really came because he was a prideful man who thought of himself before others, not a humble man, instead of thinking of others as more important than himself. Well, we've learned that humility creates unity, right? What do you think pride's going to create between people? Division, right? 
And isn't that exactly what happened immediately after that? People from the black community, people from all communities were outraged at what happened to George Floyd. Shouldn't happen to anybody. Even if he did pass a counterfeit $20 bill, nobody should take your, ni- your life that way. And that didn't just lead to um, disunity. What happened is that act of pride led to really disunity amongst black people and white people. And the fissure and the relationship gap between the races was pulled farther apart. And then what happened is there were protests, right? Justified protests, because those things shouldn't happen. But they began to go beyond what would be just and helpful. And they became looting of businesses, burning of businesses, destroying of businesses. Over 750 cops have been injured. Some police officers have been killed. And it's interesting if you listen to those people, what their rationale is for that. Do you think it's humility or do you think it's pride? It's pride, isn't it? Those businesses that were burning and looting, they deserve what they have coming to them. Those police officers that were hurting and killing, they deserve it for the way they treat people. It's pride, once again. And so all this stuff creates more division between people, not unity between people. Humility, Paul says, is the way to unity. Pride is the way to division. Ask yourself, when you're around somebody, are you drawn to them if they're prideful and arrogant? Or are you drawn to them when they're humble and kind? Humility is the pathway to unity. That's what we learned about this. And I would just propose to you, by the way, that in our culture where you see this great effort for what do you call it, racial um, unity, and now we're going to try and get the races together, I would just propose to you, I don't think a lot of that is done out of love. I think a lot of that is being done out of fear. Because if we don't do it, maybe they're going to burn our business down next. And that's really a fake unity, not a true unity. Because humility is the only way to unity. Now this morning as we get back into the book of Philippians, Paul is going to move us from the principles of unity, which is through humility, and he's going to give us an example of what does true humility look like and how does you see true unity come from that. Well, who is the example of the greatest humility that has ever happened? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the most humble man to ever live. He did the most humble acts when he walked across the earth. So he is going to be the example of humility that we're going to follow. And by the way, think about this. Isn't it Jesus' humility that brought unity? We were estranged from God. Jesus brought us back into unity with God, didn't he? We were estranged from one another. But in the church, through Jesus Christ, what has he done? He has brought us in unity with one another. So in the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither black man nor white man, because you are all united together through Jesus Christ. And it's his humility that brought that unity. I'm going to go ahead and read for you Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is our key text for this morning. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That'll be our text for this morning. Let me just uh, tell you how this text breaks apart. Go ahead, Jeremy, and give me that little graphic. It really uh, goes in two big halves. The first half talks about Jesus Christ's descent, or if you want to call it, his humility. We're going to see five big steps Jesus Christ takes as he goes from heaven to earth to die for us. The second part is about Jesus Christ's exaltation. Three huge steps up, but Jesus Christ doesn't take them. God the Father gives them to Jesus. What you find is God the Father rewards Jesus for his humility. And folks, when we get to the end, we'll discover this. God the Father doesn't just reward Jesus for his humility, but he will reward us as Christians for our humility. Because God the Father loves to reward humble people like he rewarded his son. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We'll begin with verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which mind is he talking about? Well, it's that humble mindset where you consider others more significant than yourselves. You look out for the interests of others, not just your own. He says, have that among yourselves. By the way, that mindset is yours in Christ Jesus. This world, when you walk around and you talk to people, people aren't out there considering you more significant than themselves. They're looking out for their own interests. They don't care about you. That is the normal attitude of people in this world. But when you and I came to Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we were born again, and God gave us a new heart, a, a, a new spirit. Literally what happens is that God has put the spirit of Jesus Christ in, in us, and he's molding our character to become more and more like Jesus Christ in this world, which means more we grow in Christ, the more we act as humble men and women like Jesus Christ. The more it's not about what I want, but you're more significant than I am. Your interests that's what I want to look out for, not just my own interests. So, folks, when we talk about humility this morning, in one sense, it is completely foreign to the people of this world. But it is not foreign to you and me. Because that is the character that God is trying to cultivate in us by putting His Holy Spirit on us. 
He is trying to make us into little Christs. After all, that's what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ. Humble people in this world. In fact, quite honestly, the way you can tell someone's spiritual maturity is how humble they are. How they're more considering you and your interests than their own. That is what spiritual maturity looks like. And it's the way God has uh, worked these things in us. Now let's start going down the ladder. Let's look at Christ's descent. The descent of Christ. The humility of Jesus led him to come down and to die for us. We find this right here in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We'll start with this first phrase. Jesus was in the form of God. And some people struggle. What does that mean that he's just in the form of God? He's just shaped like God, looks like God. No, actually, this means that Jesus is claiming to be God. Let me take a few minutes to get under the hood, as it were, in the Greek. The word here for form is the Greek word morphe. Sometimes we have this word come over into English. You ever heard of a metamorphosis? Somebody changes their form, meta, change, morphe, form. This is where the Greek word comes from. Morphe, though, is very specific in the Greek. It doesn't just mean that something looks to be what it is. It means something doesn't just look that way, but it actually is that way down to its true essence. In other words, it's just what it, it is what it is in its deepest and most pure essence. So when it says Jesus is in the form of God, that means he was God, he is God, and he always will be God. doesn't just look like God, he actually is God. And the way to maybe uh, understand this is to contrast the Greek word morphe with the Greek word schema. I put these definitions in your handout, by the way, and I'll read them to you. Morphe means something appears to be what it is, and its appearance actually represents its truest identity. But schema means something appears to be something, but its appearance doesn't represent its true identity. Schema means something is actually wearing a mask. So when Paul chose to use the Greek word morphe, he says Jesus didn't just look like God, he actually is God, deep in his essence. And I'll give you an illustration. You guys know the transgender movement, where people are one gender, but they all of a sudden become convinced that there actually should be a different gender. So they start dressing like the opposite gender. They start taking hormones like the opposite gender. And maybe they even have surgeries to, so to speak, become the opposite gender. And they say, well, I'm finally being my true self. No, you're not. All you did was change your schema. You changed the way you look. Because every single cell in your body either has an XX chromosome and you're a woman or an XY chromosome and you're a man. You could change your schema on the way you look, but you can't change your morphe into who you are in your deepest essence. And when Paul says that Jesus began in the form of God, he says he didn't just look like God, but his true essence, his genetic level, if you were, was God, is God, and always will be God. 
Now, why do we begin with this? Paul wants us to understand where Jesus' humility starts from. There is no more higher position that Jesus could occupy than he actually did. Was, is, and always will be God. And the reason this is important, we camp on this for a few minutes, is the way most false religions work is they tag to take away two things. Jesus' humanity or Jesus' divinity. I'll give you an example. The Jehovah's Witnesses. They may not tell you this at first, but they will tell you this. They claim Jesus wasn't actually God. And they will say, the reason he's not God, does it make sense that God would become a man? Oh, that's too big of a thing for God to do. So they say, Jesus is just the first created being of God. What they're doing is they're trying to lessen Jesus' humility. And they're clearly contradicting exactly the point Paul is trying to make in this verse. And the reason I say this is because if Jesus wasn't God and he wasn't man, then you're not saved. Because he didn't, his atonement and sacrifice wasn't enough to pay for your sin. So it messes with the gospel itself. Well, by the way, just so you know, uh, this idea that Jesus is fully God is not just spelled out in an obscure Greek word in the book of Philippians. It's actually all over the Scripture. Let me show you from the Gospel of John, for instance. John begins his Gospel with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't at first define who the Word is, but he says this Word has been around from the beginning. It's always existed. The Word is sort of um, different from God because it's with God, but yet at the same point, the Word was God. So the Word is God. So you sort of have this mind-bender that John starts with. Has always existed, is God, yet was God, and they're separate and distinct. You can see him sort of beginning the Trinity stuff here. Now you wonder, well, who is this word? You go down 13 verses and John tells you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word who has always existed, who is God, is Jesus. That's exactly what he's saying. It's found right here. By the way, uh, interesting thing, when, when John used the term the Word, the Word with God, was with God and was God, to the Jewish audience, as soon as they heard the Word, they would have instantly tracked into Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Because what did God do when he created everything? God spoke and things were created. That God's Word is the creative power of God through which the whole universe was made. Well, this would mean if Jesus is the Word, that Jesus is the one who made everything in the universe. And that's exactly what we find. For instance, if you go back to the Gospel of John, and you go to verse 3 in that Gospel, in the opening chapter, what does John say about the Word? All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is pretty incredible, isn't He? the Word of God who made everything. And Paul says the same thing. I like it in Colossians 
For by him, this is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists in the physical realm, everything that exists in the angelic realm, it doesn't matter how far you can look in your Hubble Space Telescope, Jesus is the one who created all of it. That's how big he is. Fully God. Yet this is going to be the same Jesus who is going to humble himself to take on flesh, to live a perfect life, and then to die for you and me. And you see how this is the humility of Jesus is going to unfold here and how amazing it is? By the way, um, Jesus didn't just create things in eternity past, but if you remember from our study of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus created all kinds of things when he was here on earth as well. In fact, what he did is he created things out of nothing, which is something that only God can do. And that's what Jesus had done in Genesis chapter 1, created things out of nothing. Remember when a little boy brought his fish and bread to Jesus to feed the vast multitude? And what did Jesus do? Started multiplying it, creating fish and creating bread out of nothing to feed thousands out of the sheer might of the power of his hands. That's evidence that Jesus is God. Or remember the man who was blind and Jesus would recreate his eyes out of nothing. Who couldn't hear? And he would give him hearing. And who was mute and couldn't speak? He would recreate his tongue so he could speak. But we learned this really in the Gospel of John. It was so cool. Remember the, the mute deaf man? Jesus didn't just give him the ability to speak and hear, but he had never heard language or spoken language. And Jesus created in his brain, it says in the Gospel of Mark, the ability to speak and understand language with absolute perfect fluency. One moment he had never heard language, the next moment he had a perfect A in his, in his uh, English class. Only God can create that in someone's mind, instantly implanted in their brain. This is evidence that Jesus is, is God. Remember the lepers? How he healed people with leprosy? We learned about lepers. Remember we did that little song that was sort of funny? Give me the leprosy. All my parts are falling off. Can't you see? I have the disease of leprosy. Well, we laugh at that, but that's true. We learn lepers, they lose their fingers, they lose the digits in their hand, they lose their toes, they lose their ears, they lose their nose. Their body parts literally fall off. When Jesus healed people with leprosy, what did he do? Instantly created fingers out of nothing, toes out of nothing, noses and faces out of nothing because they had rotted off. That is something that only God can do. God creates things out of nothing. And this is where Jesus starts from. The one who created everything in the universe. The one who is sustaining the entire universe right now. The only one who has created anything out of nothing. He is the one who is going to take on human flesh. Who is going to suffer. He is going to die for you and for me. That, my friends, is what humility looks like.
humility at its deepest level. Now let's look at these steps he takes down. Step one, Jesus humbled himself by not insisting he hold on to his rights as the creator. Philippians 2, 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Before we look at the, the last part of the verse, let me look at the first part. It says he did not regard him equality with God. Well, by the way, if you didn't buy anything I said earlier about Jesus being in the form of God, the morphe of God, and being equal with God, here we find the exact same thing said again. Jesus is equal with God. It's the Greek word isos. By the way, that word also comes over to English sometimes. Have you ever heard of an isosceles triangle? Remember that? With two exactly equal sides? What is this saying? Jesus did not regard his exactly equal equality with God a thing to be grasped. There you see it again. Now this idea of grasping this. Here is Jesus, equal with God, but he is not willing to hold on to his rights. He's not willing to insist on his rights and to hold on to the honor and the privileges of creating everything. Imagine what it's like for Jesus in heaven. Everything worships him. Everything owes its source and creation to him. In the entire vast universe, in the entire angelic universe. But Jesus is so humble. He sets aside all of these rights and privileges of being the one who creates everything out of nothing, who is worshipped by all the, all the vast universe, so he can come to earth to die for ungrateful sinners like you and me. Because that is the only way for us to be saved. He considered us more significant than himself. Our interests more important than his own interests. It's the definition of humility. He goes all the way down and lets all of this go. Now, what does it say? Step two, he doesn't, he's not only just willing to relinquish his rights as God, but it says Jesus humbled himself by emptying himself to become a man. But he emptied himself. Now what I'm about ready to get into, I have to tell you, is something that may be a little bit difficult to comprehend, but it's extremely important for you to comprehend this. In ordination councils, I have asked pastors this. They failed this question miserably. So I'm going to set you up for your ordination council someday. But this is very important stuff. What does it mean that when Jesus came to earth and took on humanity in the womb of Mary, he emptied himself? Many people think, well, this obviously means he must have let go part of his divinity and then taken on humanity. So he's a 50-50 kind of person. He's half God, and then he's half man. But first, that sounds pretty reasonable, until you think about it a little bit. If Jesus is only half God, was he really a sufficient sacrifice to pay for our sin? If Jesus is only half man, does he really understand us? Well, for instance, ask yourself, who here is only 50% human? Nobody. 
we're all 100% human. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the womb or if you're out of the womb. You're either 100% human or you're not human, right? So Jesus is either 100% man or he's not a man. And he's also going to have to be 100% God or Jesus is not God. So what does this leave us with? This leaves us with what Jesus did when he went into the womb of Mary is he did not take away any of his divinity. He simply poured himself into a smaller vessel of humanity. He didn't actually technically take away who he was. He added to himself humanity. So Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, you say, is that really true? Remember in the Gospel of Mark when we looked at the transfiguration? Jesus looked very human, but he went up unto the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he was transfigured, it says, and he let his actual glory shine out. It said that his face shone brighter than the sun. His clothes flashed white like lightning. It's like, this is who I actually am, guys. What he did is he veiled his divinity when he was actually in his humanity. Now, let me uh, give you this definition. I put it in your notes because it's, it's a very tight definition, but it's important to understand. Jesus emptying himself means that Jesus voluntarily chose to limit the free exercise of his divine attributes so he could fully identify with us in every way. Jesus didn't lose his divine attributes when he became a man. Emptying himself means that Jesus chose not to use his divine attributes when he became a man. There's a difference between losing his divinity and choosing not to use his divinity. Because if he lost his divinity, he wouldn't be God. Now you say, well, okay, that's good. Thank you for telling me that, and we're going to expand on that as we go further into the text here. But when, what did he empty himself of? What he did is he completely identified with us in every way. And here are some of the things that he emptied himself of. Number one, Jesus temporarily gave up his heavenly glory, didn't he, when he came to earth. For John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've temporarily given up my glory when I've been on earth. Now, please give me back that glory when I go back. Here's another one. Jesus gave up the independent use of his authority when he came to earth. Although he was a son of he learned obedience from what he suffered. Now, I may not articulate this totally clearly, but I'll do my best. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are always in perfect harmony, in a perfect loving relationship with each other. We know that. But when Jesus took on humanity, and he knew his Father's will was for him to die, for him to become sin for us. How enthusiastic do you think he was to die? How enthusiastic would you be to die? It's not easy. 
That's why it says he had to, for the first time in his life, learn to be obedient. Instead of having the joy of desiring to be obedient. Because he knew it was going to be hard to become sin. He gave up that. Now let me give you another one. Jesus chose, by the way, when he became a man, to limit his divine knowledge. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is talking about the time when Christ returns. Jesus chose to limit his knowledge on that issue when he became a man. Now, as God, in his full divinity, he knows everything that is going on with God the Father and God the Son because there's complete transparency between them. But when he's limited his knowledge because he's become a man, he doesn't know at that point. Here's another example. Jesus set aside his eternal riches. Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Before Jesus came to earth and took on human flesh in the womb of Mary, think about his riches. Jesus owned everything. Jesus created everything. Nobody could give to Jesus because he already possessed it all. But then when Jesus took on flesh and was born to Mary, what does it describe his life was like? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was a homeless man. Jesus, when he went into Jerusalem on a donkey, did he happen to have a donkey? He had to borrow a donkey. We would say, he not only was he homeless, but he didn't even have a car. Jesus lived by the Sea of Galilee, and he had fishermen who were his disciples. Did Jesus own a boat? No. Homeless man without a car who lived by the sea and who had no boat. When Jesus died, did he have a tomb? He had to borrow a tomb. The one who owned everything in the entire universe emptied himself of all of that to have no home, to have no car, to have no boat, to have no tomb emptied himself of all of that to completely identify with you and me. And maybe even more significant than this, he emptied himself of his favorable relationship with God the Father. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus and God the Father have enjoyed eternally a perfect, joy-filled relationship with one another. And you know what it's like when you're married in a marriage relationship. There is great joy and great satisfaction in that relationship. And Paul says that's just a small sampling of the joy that exists between the Father and Son and their perfect relationship with one another. But you also know in marriage when all of a sudden there's a fight there's a difference between you. And all of a sudden, you're on different sides of the house, and you are not talking to one another. And you're infuriated with one another. And you know how painful that is when your relationship breaks apart? 
Now think of it this way. Jesus, who's been in the perfect love relationship with his Father for all of eternity, has his Father turn his back on him for the first time that has ever happened. Has his Father pour out all of his just wrath and anger against sin, an eternity worth of wrath, in laser-like focus on his own son that he loves while he hangs on the cross. And Jesus gives up all of this because there is absolutely no way that you and I can be saved unless he steps in and takes the punishment that we rightfully deserve. Folks, that's humility. Considering us more significant than himself. Considering our interests more important than his own. Being willing to suffer incomprehensibly to save us. That's humility, my friends. Let's take a look at the next step down we see. The last step was that he emptied himself. We saw how he emptied himself of so many things, but step three is this. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a slave to serve us. Paul says, and when he came to earth, when he took on a human body, he took on the form of a servant. So Jesus didn't just stop exercising his divine attributes and then identify with us as a man, but he became the lowest of men. When Jesus came, we were to think, well, give him a palace. Make him a king. Isn't that low enough? He became a servant, or literally it says here, he became a slave. And this doesn't shock us like it would the ancient readers, because in the ancient world, people knew that a slave never looked out for themselves. All they were to do was give their entire life to serving other people. And that's what Jesus did. Gave his entire life to serving us. And by the way, this is not theatrical. This is not he looked like a servant. This is actually, he actually became a slave, became a servant. Interestingly, it says here he took on the form of a servant. Guess what is the Greek word for form here? Same word we looked at before. Morphe. Not schema. He didn't just look like one. He became a servant in his utter, true, and total essence to his core. Now, let me show you what Jesus says. Luke chapter 22, verse 27. He says, but I am among you as one who, what? Serves. Now, think about this. Jesus gave his whole life to serving people. Where in the Gospels do you find Jesus serving himself? You don't. Go back to the Gospel of Mark as we've studied our way through it. Remember when people started bringing their sick and, and, their, and their, those who were going with various diseases, and they kept coming around Jesus, and Jesus was healing them. He kept healing them, and we learned he goes late into the night healing them. He skips meals to continue to heal them because... Jesus is not there for himself. He's there as a servant, as a slave to serve others. Remember when Jesus and the apostles <laughs> needed some major R&R? They got on the boat to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the Gospel of Mark, 
and what happened? The crowd actually ran all the way around to the other side. Jesus gets on the other side, and if he was you and me, we'd go like, I'm sorry, we're on vacation right now. Uh, you know, leave me alone, go home. That's not Jesus. It says Jesus was filled with compassion. Even though he and his disciples are exhausted, they come to the shore, he starts teaching them, and he starts healing them because he is among them as a servant, as a slave, the lowest of men. Remember the Last Supper? The apostles all come in and nobody washes anybody's feet because they're all trying to argue with one another who is the greatest among them. They've been having that argument for a while through the Gospel of Mark. They're all thinking they're pretty cool. And what does Jesus do? The honored guest of the meal gets up, takes off his outer garments, puts a towel upon it around his waist, and he washes their feet, the job of the lowest slave in the house. This is humility, folks. The one who created the entire universe. The Word of God brought everything into being, who sustains it all, who has all the riches in the world, is willing to not grasp those things, but to let go of those things. To take on a human body, to limit and restrain the use of all this divine power. And not just any role on this planet, but the role of an absolute servant to all on this planet. Are you seeing the humility of Jesus? He continues to go down. Step four. Jesus humbled himself by identifying with our humanity in every single way. Paul says in Philippians 2.7, being born in the likeness of man. The word likeness here uh, literally means that Jesus completely identified with us in every way. There would be no way that people looking at Jesus would have seen him as anything other than a human being until he started doing the miracles he did, creative miracles, where he creates things out of nothing, which is something only God can do. When the lights went out at night, Jesus didn't glow in the dark. When Jesus had homework to do, he didn't use his divine power to help him get the homework done. No, he actually had a study. He actually had to, to learn Remember when Jesus has begun his ministry and he's, he's doing healings and all these things, and then he went back to Nazareth, his hometown where he grew up, and what did they say about him? He can't be the Messiah. He's just the son of the carpenter. He's nobody special. We know him. We've seen him for 30 years. He's an ordinary guy. That is how much he restrained his divine attributes to completely identify with us in every way. So until God the Father chose for him to reveal those portions of his divinity, he completely restrained those portions of his divinity. This is why you find Jesus getting tired. You find Jesus getting sleepy. Jesus getting thirsty. Jesus having to go through puberty. Jesus needed a haircut. Jesus needed a shower. 
Jesus identified with us in every single way except for one thing. What was it? Sin. Look what the book of Hebrews says. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Or Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is humility, my friends. Going from the absolute top, working his way to the absolute bottom. Considering us more significant than himself. Looking out for our interests, not his own. Because that is the only way for us to be saved. Then he says in step five, Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The one who has created the universe has become a man, has become a poor man, a, a servant man, but he knows that he has to become obedient to the point of death. Now, I, if I was told to die, I would have a hard time to being, doing that. You would have a hard time doing that. But for Jesus, his death would be far more horrid than yours or mine could ever be. Because Jesus knew that when he died, God the Father would literally pour out an eternity worth of wrath on him. And he would experience the full eternity of suffering that we deserved while hanging on the cross. And when he did that, he would not use any of his divine strength to insulate himself from suffering any of those incredible agonies. He did this because he loves you and me. Folks, this is love. This is love incredible. He did this all for us. And not only that, but he died on a cross we don't understand this fully because we don't understand what death on the cross is like, but understand that death in the cr- crucifixion was invented by the Persian. It was perfected by the Romans. It was considered the absolute most hideous way for anyone to be ever to die. Some of you may think, well, wouldn't being burned alive be worse? Nope, they tried it. Cross is far worse than being burned alive. How about being drowned? Nope, they tried it. Crucifixion is far worse than drowning. Crucifixion, it's exquisite amounts of pain. There's even a Greek word they invented to describe the level of pain that could even only be obtained in a person's body by crucifixion. It's called exclusis pain in Greek, pain of the cross. Imagine having your arms nailed wide and the full weight of your body hanging on the nerves in your hands and the weight of your body collapsing your lungs so you could barely breathe, and your feet being pounded into wood. To help you engage in that, let me just imaginatively ask you to do this. Who here has ever had a splinter in their foot? Anybody? Are splinters in your feet painful? Are they hard to get out? 
I've had splinters, and they're very hard to get out if they're in there deep. The pain is exquisite. That is a splinter. Imagine pounding a nail through your foot and the entire weight of your body being hanging on your foot. That is the pain that Jesus went through. And at any time, he could have said, oh, I'm done with this. I'm going to use my divine power to rip myself off the cross, to end all of this. I'm not dying for this humanity. These people I'm dying for, they're spitting on me. They're laughing at me. They're mocking me. Such ungrateful refuse. Jesus didn't do that. He stayed humble. He endured all of this on the cross, even to the point where he chose to give up his own life for you and for me. Because there is no other way for us to be saved. And I'll say it again, considering us more significant than himself, looking out not for his interests, but for our own. My friends, that is what true humility looks like. And you and I as Christians, we're called to follow on his path. Christians means little Christs. That we are to be like Jesus in this world. Humble men, humble women, who look out for the interest of others, even when people mock us for it, they laugh us at us for it. They call us weak. They call us spineless. No, we're like Jesus. Now, let me give you some quick applications, uh, by the way, that would be helpful for you. Unity in the church comes when we give up our rights and pride to humbly serve others in the church with great humility like Jesus served us. Imagine what it would be like in the church if people were as humble as Jesus, considering others better than themselves, being willing to be wronged by others in the church, not take revenge on others in the church, not be filled with anger towards others in the church. It's like Jesus wasn't filled with anger towards us. Do you see how that would be the pathway to unity among God's people when we're all acting like Jesus Christ is God's people? Another application, unity in marriage comes when we give up our rights by humbly serving our spouse like Jesus gave up his rights to humbly love and serve us. As a pastor, I probably end up on more marriage counseling calls than I would like, but I can tell you how often it goes when things are on the, on the rocks. You have a husband or a wife who is yelling at the other saying, I don't deserve to be treated like this. How dare you say this? What is all that rooted in? Pride. I deserve better. How dare you treat me? And what does pride do with people? Tears them apart. But what would happen if in those conversations it was, you know, I want to consider you more significant. I want to look at your interests. I don't care how you've hurt me. I don't care what you've done to me. I love you. I'm going to serve you like Jesus loves and serves me. That's all I care about right now. What do you think is going to happen in that marriage? They'll come back together. One other application. 
Unity and culture comes when we give up our rights to stoop down low in order to love and serve others, like Jesus went low to love and serve us. And notice this, just like Jesus, we should expect to be hated and misunderstood when we do this. In our cultural climate right now, with all these racial issues going on, we are called as Christians to get humble, to love and to serve those who are different from us and expect we will be mocked, not just by people of our own race, but by people of a different race that we are loving and serving. They mock Jesus. Why won't they mock and oppress you? But that's the way it works. Now, some of you would say, well, if, you know, what's the reward of all this humility? Is there any upside to this? Oh, yes, there is. And this is what I want you to know. Jesus, who went from the very top to the very bottom, was taken from the absolute bottom by God the Father and made the most high, exalted being in the universe. Look at this. The exaltation of Jesus. God the Father greatly rewarded Jesus because of the great humility of Jesus. Here's the point. The greater the humility of God's people, the greater the reward from God for God's people. The more humble you are in this life, the more rich your reward when you face God in the next life. Humility is never a losing proposition. Look how Jesus was rewarded. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, that is Jesus, the name that is above every name. Point A here. God rewarded Jesus' humility by giving him the highest position in the universe. God has highly exalted him. In Greek, it's he has been hyper-exalted. Now some of you are like, that's no big deal. I thought you just told me Jesus was God, in the form of God, always was, is, and will be God. He already had the highest position in the universe, so what's the big deal about getting it back? Here's the big deal. When Jesus held the highest position before the incarnation, he was God only. But with the incarnation, he became fully God and fully man but he chose not to exercise those divine attributes anymore. So he 100% identifies with us as a man. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, or raised from the dead, think of it this way. Jesus, the man, now holds the highest position in the entire universe, as a reward from God the Father for His humility. Don't care how far you look in a telescope. I don't care how deep you look in a microscope. Jesus, the man, is now ruling over all of it. And by the way, <laughs> you and I are His adopted brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm thankful I'm part of that family tree. That is the blessing of being a Christian. That is the reward he received for his incredible humility. By taking the lowest position in humility, he was given the highest position in reward. It says this, And then he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Where is Jesus seated now? 
far above all rule and authority and all powers and dominions and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The greater the humility, the greater the reward. The ultimate in humility of Jesus equals the ultimate reward for Jesus. The next thing, God rewarded Jesus' humility by giving him the highest name in the universe. And he's bestowed on him a name that's above every name. The first, when you read that, you say, well, like, what is it? Like Frank, Sam, I don't know, what's, what's the name? It's missing. But if you read to the end of this section, the name is revealed. Here's it is, that every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that has been given to Jesus, think of it this way, Jesus, a human being, is the title of Lord. In the Greek, that is the name of God the Father. Think of it this way, the human being Jesus has now been given not just the highest place in the universe, but been given the name of God the Father in the universe. There could be no higher title given to Jesus. And yet we are his adopted brothers and sisters. The last point here, God rewarded Jesus' humility by making him the one everyone and everything will worship in the universe. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some tongues will confess Jesus is Lord willingly. That'll be you and me. Worship with joy. That'll be Michael, the archangel, who will worship him with joy. Others will confess him as Lord unwillingly. Like Satan, he will bow the knee. Everyone else who doesn't know Jesus, they will bow the knee because he has the highest place in the universe and the highest name in the universe as a reward for his humility. Right now, if you've watched social media, you know that people from Black Lives Matter like to come around to white people and they say, get on the knee and bow to me and confess your white privilege. And if you don't, you don't want to find out what's going to happen. I've got news for you. Someday, everyone will bow the knee, not to a black man or to a white man, but to the God-man who has the highest place in the universe. Here's the point to remember. The same God who exalted the humble Christ will also exalt the humble Christian. The more we pursue humility in this life, even at great cost, the more richly we will be rewarded by God the Father in the next life, just like Jesus was. As James says in James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you, lift you up, and reward you. So the two main conclusions you want to remember from today are this. Number one, the only pathway to unity is through humility, not through pride. And Jesus is the ultimate example of that path. The other thing you want to remember is this. The only way to be richly rewarded by God is through humility. 
the more humble we are in this life, like Jesus, the more richly we will be rewarded in the next life, like Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing, rich, Christological passage. And as we held it in our hands and we turned it like a diamond to see it's so many rich and detailed facets, I pray that we will have been amazed. I ask, Heavenly Father, that um, you would help us to understand the incredible humility of your Son for us. That we would stand in awe over what he had given up, what he has experienced and done out of love for us. May that cause worship in our hearts to Him. May it motivate us to be men and women who are little Christs, Christians in this world, pursuing humility and service to others just like You did for us. Even if we're misunderstood, even if we're hated for it and mocked for it, we know that's what happened to Jesus. And we also know that God the Father, You will richly reward us for thinking of others more significant than ourselves and putting their interests in front of our own. That is the kind of life you love to reward. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.